you know, it's been so long since I've been doing these podcasts. I now feel like I'm trying to be the Eric that I used to be when I say, what it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of The Myths That Make Us. And I don't know why I even say what it do. And a uh, self-judgmental part of me says that I'm culturally appropriating black culture that I use to hide myself when I was in high school because I was insecure. And then a part with more compassion is like uh, the people that you hung out with and that you respected spoke like that. And so you did too. And that you actually didn't give a fuck what color their skin was and that it's uh, just a phrase to say. So uh, the way my consciousness is working uh, is the byproduct of something that I talked about in last week's episode, which is it's been months since I've uh, recorded podcasts. And I've been in this interesting stage in my life where it feels like I'm kind of going into my cocoon and I'm reviewing my past in a way that I've never done in my adult life. And I think the easiest way to sum it up is that uh, most of my professional, if you could even call it that, psychological career, again, if you'll grant me that word, um, I have focused on language being the means through which to heal people. And so I've studied things like expressive journaling and things like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is incredibly potent. And I used it on myself to work through a lot of what felt like kinks in my psyche. And then about a year and a half ago, I discovered um, trauma, uh, specifically acute PTSD. And then I started to research that and I realized, holy shit, I've been naive for the last like nine years, the last 10 years. And it's that uh, people who have acute PTSD, these type of talking cures that I've studied don't work you have to actually address the soma of the body before you can start to help them change their stories. And so it was kind of like a revolution of my worldview when it comes to helping people heal themselves. And then within the last couple of months, I started to study like what shame is. And that brought me to um, a less known but much more pervasive type of trauma that's clinically referred to as complex PTSD. And as I started to study complex PTSD, I realized um, this is the water that we swim in. And there's a great story made famous by David Foster Wallace. And it's, there's two fish and they're swimming in the ocean and they swim by an older fish and the older fish says to them, hey kids, how's the water today? And the two young fish look at each other and they ask each other, what's water? Uh, complex PTSD, we all have it. At least from what I can see, where I stand, everyone has it. And complex PTSD can be thought more of as a gradual interpersonal trauma. And it's essentially at any point in our life where we had acute shame, 
that the response of that shame grew a coping pattern where we tried to repress some authentic expression in ourselves to avoid feeling shame again. And so I started this technique or this practice, this tool, where I'm starting to go through my past and collect all of my shame stories. And I have like 44 of them right now. And it's like um, maybe every other day, a new set of memories come back to me. And I'm like, wow. And the process that I've been going through is I write the story to myself as honestly as I can. And then I go through a practice where I write out apologizing to whoever the other people were in the environment, you know, of that memory. And then also apologizing to myself. And then doing the Ho'oponopono practice where I say, uh, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. And it's been really potent, but it's also been, um, frankly, destabilizing. A really interesting thing is, um, as I've been working on this, my stutter has gotten, it's been quote unquote acting up the last few months where I've been stuttering much more than I normally do. And the thing that's interesting is when I do podcasts, I tend to almost never stutter. When I'm on stage, I tend to never stutter. But when I talk to my friends, I've been stuttering more lately in the last few months than I have in the last probably about six years. And it feels like my intuition is that my stutter is connected to my shame. And for people who have chronic pain disorders, uh, anyone who's healed a chronic pain disorder, they will know what I'm about to talk about as true. And it's that um, our chronic pain disorders are, are linked to repressed emotions. And shame seems to be the fundamental archetypical human emotion that represses our emotions. And, you know, just to be frank, one of the core shame threads that I've found going through my childhood is that I learned somewhere along the way that um, my charisma and my um, ability to hold people's attention was met by people in my core childhood ecosystem as bad and that also it was bad to be a man that it was uh not okay to um express the qualities of the masculine so aggression lust competition being loud being a strong force in the room. And uh, it's been really illuminating. And going through this process of apologizing 
to the people that I've that I feel shame for about how I treated when I was younger. Like a story that I remembered yesterday that just popped into my head was that when I was like nine, uh, my favorite video games growing up were Final Fantasy. And to beat a Final Fantasy game, it took about 50 or 60 hours of play. You know, and back in the day, video games were on discs and it was like a four disc game. And I got to the final level of the game and there was a scratch on my last disc and I couldn't, like my disc would skip and I wouldn't be able to play. You know, and to my nine-year-old self, this was the most important problem in my life to solve. And that within a week, I had found a family in my neighborhood where there was a kid who was my age, where I basically manipulated him so that I could get into his house, so that I could play his version of my video game. And I have this memory of being in his room, playing his PlayStation so that I could play that final level. And he wasn't even in the house and his mom or dad walked into the room. And I remember the look on their face being like, like they were disturbed. And in hindsight, the thing that I feel shame about is <clears throat> for people who have a type of complex PTSD where their successful adaptation to it is to be charming. That's called the fawn response to trauma. So there's four evolutionary responses to trauma. One is to fight. One is to flee. The third is to freeze. And the fourth is to fawn. And to fawn is to be able to intuitively feel what the caretaker needs and to anticipate what they want from you and to become that so that you can avoid either physical or emotional pain. And because of the childhood that I grew up in and you know the disposition that I have, I was very good at that. And so in hindsight, what I can see is um, this boy and his family, they were a deeply traumatized family. And I'm gonna leave out details uh, for their own privacy, but in hindsight, it's very clear that from the psychological lens that I have now, uh, that was a family that had deep, trauma that was hurting all of the members of the family and that my nine-year-old self could could intuitively feel this is a weak animal that i can manipulate you know and a part of the process was forgiving my nine-year-old self for having done that but then also apologizing to that family like I didn't like that boy. I, I didn't respect him. I saw him as a tool to be exploited, to get what I wanted. And this is just one of dozens and dozens of stories that I've been able to bring up. And um, something that's been really 
helpful actually in the last few weeks is that I started to, or I had the deep pleasure of finding the documentary on Netflix called Stutz, S-T-U-T-Z. And it's a documentary done by Jonah Hill where it's based off of his psychiatrist uh, whose last name is Stutz. And it is a incredible documentary, especially for anyone who's interested in mental health. And it's the first documentary that I've seen where the way it is shot is as if you, the viewer, get a direct opportunity to get psychotherapy from an incredible master psychotherapist. And um, he introduced this idea. Well, he, he introduced quite a few ideas in that documentary, and I deeply recommend it to everyone listening. But the thing that really helped me is that he introduced this idea called part X. And he said that part X is the archetypical part in every human psyche that is trying to fuck your shit up. And that it's the part of us that tries to keep us from growing. It's the part of us that tries to keep us from changing. And it's the... You'll always have it, but whenever you can become aware of it, it just evaporates like a ghost. As soon as you bring clear, compassionate awareness to it. And that, at least for me, it seems like one of part X's greatest spells that it can use on you is shame. And what's so interesting to me is that I've done quote unquote so much work and that shame has completely eluded me as something to try to uh, alchemize and that now that I can see shame I see it everywhere and it's like how much of our day-to-day life is the result of us trying to do things to avoid feeling shame. Like I know for me, um, most of my day is actually the result of the coping patterns that I've learned to try to mitigate feeling shame. I can feel that my drive to be productive is to actually assuage the feeling of feeling shame about the privilege and the success and the opportunities and the money that I have in my life. And that like so many of our conversations with other people and uh, like, like for me, when I'm in meetings, I can see where people's shame pops up and then weird things start to happen where they will like change what they're saying or I don't know if you guys experience this but I have people in my life who they start a thought and you can feel that they that some kink happens in them and they abandon the thought midway through speaking it and then their thought just kind of like trails off 
in this like fog of shame. And then there's like our intimate relationships where it's like, um, there's things that we don't share. Like maybe something happened during the day that, uh, was important to you, but you don't bring it up to your partner because you just don't want to deal with whatever the response might be that might trigger shame in you. Where it gets more interesting is um, if you're upset with your intimate relationships, you might actually seek out to talk about things to make them feel shame so that you can feel vindicated or in a place of power. And there's a bunch of examples, but um, I found that watching that documentary has really helped. And um, I'm kind of, this is kind of me opening it up. And I brought Graham onto this episode to kind of like have a back and forth because he watched the documentary with me. So Graham, with all that shared, um, what comes up for you in regards to either shame or the documentary that we watched? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it was, I mean, the documentary itself was one of the coolest pieces of art I've seen in a long time. And it was funny how we like stumbled upon it. You know, like we weren't, I think we had just finished watching uh, Graham Hancock's right. documentary and we just like saw it and we were like, what is this? We weren't going to watch it. And then we decided to. And within the first like 10 seconds, Godzi was just like standing up, yelling at the TV. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, the tools that he unpacks are like things that I, I feel like you have talked about before, but it was just from a refreshing lens. And I think that um, the part X thing was huge. And the other thing, which I think was the first tool that he talked about was this idea of like if you're stuck cultivating your life force yes cultivating your life force um which i think is just like a beautiful way to look at it because it's like it's the one thing you can do if you have no idea what to do yeah like if you don't if you feel stuck and you don't know where to go and you don't know what the next thing is like you can always cultivate your life force and you can watch the documentary to kind of learn more about that. But basically, the idea is there's always your body. There's always your mind. There's always something that you can do to move you closer to the version of yourself you want to be, even if you feel yeah the most stuck. Yeah, and the reason that I was freaking out about that part is uh, if you guys are long-time listeners of this podcast, you guys will have heard me talk about the daemon and how... One of the core metaphors that really resonates with me to help people orient themselves is to think of themselves as an acorn. And that built into the genetic information of the acorn is the instructions on how to build an oak tree. That on some biological, literal level, the acorn knows it's meant to become an oak tree. And that's your life force. Exactly. And that humans seem to be the only organism on this planet that has the capability of stunting 
their own natural becoming of what they actually are at a genetic level. And that when he brought up this idea of like the first thing that he gives to his clients is this tool of cultivating life force. And he says, it, as you start to cultivate your life force, your life force will know what to do next. And so people who don't know like what they need to work on or what's wrong, he has this absolute clear belief where like his tone in the documentary is it's like, shut up, stop questioning this. I promise you, if you do this, it will work or I will give you your money back 100%. Just fucking do it. And that's such a refreshing like view of psychotherapy rather than just, I mean, I think the traditional way to do it is to just kind of shut up and listen to the patient. But his approach is like, no, it's my responsibility to give them something that they can apply right now to feel like that they can change right now. Because if they leave the office or the meeting feeling like, you know, all they got to do is talk and have someone listen to them, I think that's great. But there's nothing actionable after that. It's just kind of like a venting. It's like a release for sure. Yeah. But there's not a tool to go home and like, right. And that, and the life force is for anybody is like an immediate thing you can start doing right now. And in any moment you can decide to right. stop what you're doing and instead cultivate your life force. And so the three step pyramid that he draws, like what's so cool is he, he draws these tools on note cards and then he gives the note cards to his client and they're like personal transmissions from him to them. It's not like he gives them like a workbook or like a book that he's written that he just gives to everyone. He will write them out on note cards and he will give them to them. And uh, this three-step pyramid he draws, the first step is the body. The step in the middle is relationships. And, this, and the last part at the top is your relationship with yourself. And what's so refreshing is a psycho therapist's first recommendation is learn how to sleep, learn how to eat, and learn how to exercise. That if you do just those three things, that will take care of 85% of the blockedness that you feel in your life. And this is where I think I stood up and just started to scream because it's like, yes, yes, yes. The first step for all people who find themselves needing mental help is to have a psychotherapist talk about sleep, diet, and exercise. And that was just so incredibly refreshing. And then step two, which is relationships, the way that he frames it is it's like, even if you don't fucking like, like people, just trust me, do this experiment this week and we'll talk about it when you come back. But invite anyone who will say yes to go get coffee. Even if you don't think they're interesting, even if you fucking hate them, just being around other people connects us back to the interdependentness of our life. And that it it brings us back into life in a very real way. And then step three, you know, is like your relationship with yourself. And that's where he starts to introduce this idea of part X. That like part X is trying to keep you from 
you know, to use a cliche, loving yourself. Because if you did, you would start to do new things. You would stop doing some of the things that keep you from doing new things. And that part X is a tricky, slippery motherfucker. One of the things that he offers as like a, a scalpel to cut through the illusion of part X is he says that there are three constant aspects of reality. The first one is pain. Number two is uncertainty. And number three is constant work. And that one of the most common spells that part X will use is this idea that he calls the snapshot. And your snapshot is this fantasy that part X creates where it's, if we all have it, if I just can get here, there will be no more pain. There will be no more uncertainty and there will be no more constant work. And he's like, the snapshot will destroy you if you don't learn to see that it's a spell of part X. Because there will always be pain and the existence of pain is not a representation that you're broken and it's not evidence that you're doing it wrong. Uncertainty, when it comes up in your life, is not evidence that you're broken and it's not evidence that you're doing it wrong. And then the thing that I deeply resonate with is that no matter where you get in your journey on life, there will be more work to do. One of the, one of my favorite Zen proverbs is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Yeah. And I think the snapshot thing was huge for me because I think I'd never heard it unpacked like that. And it's almost, it's refreshing to understand that there's always going to be pain because you're snap like two and a half years ago, my snapshot was my life now. And I thought that if I got to here, you know, everything would be fine, but now I'm here and I still have pain just like everybody else. And I have a new snapshot and just understanding that the pain is never going to leave and the constant work is never going to leave is really refreshing. And then the other thing with um, part X is, and this is kind of just another synchronicity, but um, I started listening. Have you heard of the book? You are the mountain. No. So I just, I started listening to it last night. Um, I had kind of like a hard day yesterday, just coming back from Thanksgiving and just feeling like out of alignment in a lot of areas. And I started listening to this book and I just kind of drew this connection as you were talking. Um, but this idea of part X being this force that is trying to stop you from um, like getting to where you want. Another way to look at that, and this is an idea that comes from that book, is it's not like this malicious force that's trying to stop you if you exactly. think about it really it's trying to protect you yeah it's your subconscious like understanding your trauma and your shame and it's trying to protect you from having to face those things but 
But part X was programmed by the child version exactly. of you that felt those traumatic feelings for the first time. Right. And a part of being an adult is having the like unconditional, unwavering awareness to be able to go back to those older slash younger, those previous parts of you and almost like reparent the child that experienced each of those things and be like, Hey, um, I know, like I'll, I'll share a personal story. Um, when I got surgery on my rotator cuff, when I was in high school, I was a senior and I, uh, lived alone. It's a long story. And I got like a six month prescription to Oxycontin and I got absolutely addicted to opiates. And when I ran out, I didn't understand what addiction was. I didn't understand what opiates were. I didn't understand what withdrawals were. I went into binge eating for the first time in my life. And over the course of a couple of months, I gained like 40 pounds of fat. Um, I had tits and I would wear two layers of t-shirts so people couldn't see that I had like man boobs. And what I learned at that point in my life is that I can get close to the opiate feeling if I binge eat food with a bunch of sugar in it. And as a 31 year old man now, like if I overwork and I get burnt out, or if I overexert myself and I tweak like something in my back, my unconscious default, my part X is I become that 18 year old again. And I seek to overeat food to get that feeling of like, almost like a pseudo safety mm. in my body. And that's not a adaptive strategy going forward. And the reason why I have so much motivation in my life to do this uncomfortable, like self-reflection is that I'm engaged and I can feel that on the horizon of my life, there are going to be children. And if I do not alchemize this binge eating protection adaptation, my children will learn it from me. And so without it, like this is an a advanced practice that I'm doing because it's heavy because I'm accepting the responsibility that any of my part X adaptations that do not lead to a flourishing life, my children will learn because we learned most of our part X adaptations from watching our parents part X adaptations. If your parents use disassociation, if they used workaholism, if they used alcohol, if they used dramatic friendships that allowed them to ignore whatever the thing is, like we learn that because our caretakers when we're children are the most important humans in the universe to us. And we watch them like hawks and we learn from them. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that, um, you can kind of like each individual can decide how they want to be in relationship with part X. Um, like if it is beneficial to you and if it's, it works for you, 
you can see part X as like a force kind of like Stephen Pressfield talks about like capital R resistance. That's like it's the same you're thing. fighting against, you know, but if that is something that you've tried, even if you don't know you've tried, but if you've been in relationship to part X in that way, another way you can look at it is something that has been trying to protect you and something that you can face with like love and be like, Hey, like I don't need you right now. It's not that I don't need you ever. I just don't need you right now. Because like you said, like that story is no longer serving you. Yeah. This is a really interesting point where, um, one of the ways that my part acts will trip me up is that, um, I'll overindulge in one of my coping behaviors and then I'll have this surge of motivation to do something big and new. Same. And then if I'm unconscious, it's actually part X because what I do is I will try to do something that's too far beyond my level of competence right now. And part X knows if we set the bar too far, he'll trip mm-hmm. and then we'll have him again. And Mm -hmm. then we can stay safe in the comfortable world that we have. And that um, what I've had to learn to do over the course of the last 10 years is humble myself Mm -hmm. to the point where when I have the motivation to make a change that I know is actually good for me, to break it down in in such a way where I can actually show up to it every day and slowly chip away and do the constant work, which is the chop wood and carry water. And so there's some people who will, who think they're trying to fight part X, Mm -hmm. but it's actually a self tripping mechanism where we naively overestimate what we're capable of doing so that we trip and actually stay where we were. Mm. And Graham, to your point, I think something that's really important to connect to is part X is not some cosmic conspiracy where humans have been, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories out there where it's like, you know, humans were this great race of organisms and then some alien like injected fear into us and that it came from the archons of the universe or whatever. There's a bunch of different stories like that. But I think what is a much more useful frame is that because of the type of creatures we are and we have the type of potential that we do have, part X is actually a part of the alchemical ingredients that is required for the type of growth that humans are capable of growing into. And a way to think about this is I've talked about this somewhere, I forgot where, but you can get to a certain level of awareness where you can see that the greatest ally to every hero in every movie that you've ever fallen in love with is not uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's not, um, you know, the princess that they fall in love with. It's Darth Vader. Mm. That the quote unquote villain is the evolutionary force that pushes the hero to the point where they're able to realize that they're more capable than anything they previously thought that they were. 
and that it seems to be built into the nature of reality that in order for evolution to happen, there must be a price if you fail, there must be resistance, and there must be a quote-unquote adversary. But I think what's really important to, like the frame to put around that frame is there's this idea of finite and infinite games. And that a finite game, you could use the example of football, where it's people, they're genuinely trying to beat the opponent so that they can win. But what most people don't recognize about all games is that in order for the finite game to happen, all players must unconsciously or consciously choose to cooperate via following the rules of the game. Every football player knows that there are things that they're not allowed to do and they unconsciously accept to cooperate. And the referees are there to make sure that the infinite game is continued to be played. And so you can think about that with your adversary is that there is some infinite game where the two of you are actually cooperating, but within the infinite game, they do not get it mixed up. They are trying to fucking mm. beat you. But that there's an infinite game that that's happening within. And it seems to be the infinite game is your individual evolution. Yeah, and I think the, the point you brought up about overestimating, like when you get into those ruts, and, and I just caught myself doing this this morning, but like when I was journaling, and I've done this my whole life. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's like, I was journaling and I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, get back into my habits today. And I wrote down what I'm going to do every day. And it was like, <laughs> get back to an hour of meditation a day, like no tobacco, no weed. And I, and I, I literally stopped myself I was, as I was writing and caught myself because it was like, hey, dude, maybe start with one thing, you know? Um, Maybe start with meditation or, you know, like we going back to your life force, if you don't have your diet, exercise and sleep down, for sure, start with those three things. Um, because like in the documentary, he said, that's really like 85% of it. But I've always had this tendency to, when I feel myself out of alignment, I like feel like a warrior and I'm like, all right, today, right now, I'm going to start. It's like how everyone's like, okay, I'll start my workout plan on Monday. <laughs> and it's like, and then like starting on Monday, I'm going to be fucking perfect. And the problem with that is you're fucking not. And you're going to, if you build up that level of perfection that you need to strive after, you're inevitably going to slip up easier where it'd be much more effective to kind of take it one thing at a time. Um, and I mean, I think there there is validity to trying to make big changes sometimes, but yeah the the thing that comes to mind for me is that there's two major avenues through which you can quote unquote change, which is really um, to be more in alignment with the person that you know you actually are when you can get quiet enough, and one is through you could really think of it as like one's acute, like PTSD, and the other one is gradual, like complex PTSD. 
And the acute moments are where something catastrophically painful happens that then you have that like on the bathroom floor type moment. And then those tend to actually create radical change. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had experiences in my life where I had a catastrophic, painful moment and then just my life radically changed after I alchemized that. And those are some of the most beautiful moments, even though it's so painful. Like Absolutely. those are the catalyst moments that get you to make big leaps. But the thing about those moments is that they can also break people. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's almost like there's an element of grace where if you have the grace to get through those moments, you know, hallelujah, give thanks. But as a more mature adult, like when I can feel that I have a genuine call to either remove a habit or to add a habit that would bring me more in alignment with who I know I actually am in this life, I will give a prayer where I end the prayer with in as beautiful and as easeful and as graceful a way as possible. And what I have found in my life is that in order for change to be graceful, it tends to not be the Mm -hmm. type change. It's the slow chop wood, carry water. Yeah. Don't try to cut down a whole fucking tree and carry it across the lake. You know, that's a great point. And like for me, a specific example is um, I know that I have a relationship with food that is actually deeply traumatized. And I actually think that almost everyone in our culture has this too. And so if I can step onto my soapbox for a moment and we feel into this, I had this insight last night. We as a culture are so disassociated from our food that when we look at our food, most of us don't actually know what we're looking at. Like the truth of a cut of meat is that it is a a slab of flesh from an animal. The truth of a fruit or a vegetable is that it grew out of a plant, out of the ground, and that it was there for months or years. But our system that brings food to us, almost all of it is packaged. It's transformed in a way where we can't even see what we are actually eating. And almost every restaurant on this planet, not on this planet, but at least in Western culture, what the chefs do in the kitchen is they add disguises to the food to the point like pasta is not a food. Pasta is the plants that it took to create that food. Christian is going to be so fucking pissed at you, dude. You know, and a part of uh, like one of the things that's hard to articulate is the appreciation of recognizing the level of disassociation that we live in. And that for me, it's really deep and poignant with food. And that like where I'm at in my life right now is it's like, all right, lunch, I am going to eat real food where I connect to the animal that it came from and I give thanks. And I often forget, but it's like, I've been working on that for the last, you know, maybe like eight months. 
And my dream is to get to the point that by the time I have a child, they will watch how I interact with food in a way and that we will have a garden and a greenhouse where they will understand where fruits and vegetables come from. And that in my dream life, the meat that we eat are from the one or two animals per year that I go hunt, that I give a prayer to before I kill it, and I take the responsibility to kill it. And that I give thanks as I'm cutting the flesh away from the bones. And that that's the meat that we eat. Now, a really interesting thing to understand about part X is that one of its best moves is to make you feel shame for the shame mm -hmm. that you feel when you quote unquote fail to do something that you aspire to do. And so like a part of this slow, gradual type of change so that you don't have to experience catastrophe in order to change is you have to learn how to do this dance with you aspire and you fail. You learn what you can from the failure and then you recommit and you aspire further. And it's like you're failing into greater and greater understanding and that we have a long life in front of us if we learn how to slow down and there is infinite opportunities. I mean, not technically, there's many opportunities every day to just take a moment recognize the little part X spiral you just went into. Notice, forgive, and then recommit. Yeah, and I think forgiveness is huge. And the awareness of part X allows you to have compassion for yourself when you are in those dark places or when you feel like you've been slipping up for a long time. You can, you can track it back to, you know, it's this idea of like self-sabotage, which I'm very familiar with. Like when things start to go really well and then I, you know, a few days later, I'm like, I feel like instead of riding that wave, I decided to fall back. But having awareness that it's this, you know, other part of yourself that's trying to protect you um, allows you to have compassion for yourself and then move forward. Yeah, an, an interesting thing to feel into is that there's something deep in our culture where we have a flinching whenever our pleasure of life starts to get too high. Mm. And there's this idea in the book, Conscious Loving, which I believe they call your upper limit. And that one of the most important things in your life in order to deepen the amount of love that you will receive from relationships, from strangers, career success, finances, it has to do with finding out where your upper limit is. And your upper limit is the, um, the threshold of goodness that you feel you are worthy of having in your life. And I think that fundamentally comes down to wherever our shame knots are in our psyche. 100%. And that it's, it's like 
One of the things that I witness in fit for service over and over again, and I don't know how we do it, but I see that it is something that happens, which is people by being in a community of other people who are basically just being honest and vulnerable, they begin to see that all of these things that they thought were their unique shame and their unique guilt and why they're not worthy of X, Y, and Z, they see other people claim it. And there's something almost in witnessing other people sharing these same private self-loathing stories that are our justifications for why we are not worthy of actually being, you know, the musician that we want to be or the writer that we want to be or the lover that we want to be or the type of love that we want to call in. It loosens it because mm. the delusion that my pain is so special that it is worthy of me withholding love. You know, and I can talk about the idea, but, you know, we all have our upper limit. And one of the things that's been incredibly helpful for me is actually learning the nuances of evolutionary biology and um, the byproducts of that, that are evolutionary psychology, which gives the realization once you study it enough of, oh, I am a goofy little monkey thing that has instincts and drives and impulses that has been born into a type of urban zoo that is not constructed to make it effortless for me to thrive, that it is obvious and completely normal and okay that I'm going to be confused, that I'm going to fuck up, that I'm going to hurt people and myself at times, that I'm going to try to do things and I'm going to fail at doing those things and that I'm going to be angry and afraid. And all of that is an absolutely normal, okay part of the human experience. And that I can get to a place at times where it's almost like um, I'm like a loving zookeeper that is taking care of a animal that was born into domestication. And so the zookeeper knows like, I can't just let this motherfucker back out in the wild, he'll die. But I know that him being in here, you know, it's really hard on him. Mm. And I'm gonna do the best that I can within this zoo that I'm in, you know, to help him live the best life that he can live. Now, that's how I felt nine years ago. But a part of, you know, being at the point in my life that I'm at right now is I have more audaciousness. And it's like, no, we can rebuild this whole fucking zoo. We can transform this zoo into being a almost type of like hospital that can heal this animal to the point where maybe it's not meant to be in the wild, but that there's this in-between place that can be this new place where there's shelter and technology that accentuates and exemplifies 
the wildness of this animal, but this animal can also help other animals and help the earth and all, all of this. And so there's this audaciousness where it's like, we can improve the zoo to become a sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. I think two things that are coming up are, I really resonate with the idea of like this upper limit, you know, cause it feels like that, like once you hit that upper limit, at least for me is when I start to self-sabotage because I've, you know, metaphorically, I've, I've literally like reached to the limit of the success or the happiness that I feel like I'm worthy of or I deserve. So I'd love to get your thoughts one on how we can like raise that upper limit. And then the other thing that's coming up is, um, and this kind of plays into the part X thing, but I've always had this like juxtaposition or trying to hold this balance of, you know, there's no rush to change, but also that, you know, life is fleeting and I'm running out of time. And I've felt like this since I was like, even when I was like 22, 23 years old, I had this just subconscious thought that it's like, it's too late. Mm. I'm seeing people who are 17, 18, who are doing the thing that I want to do. And I've already run out of time. Yeah, And it's like finding a balance of, you know, having compassion mm. for where you are, but also yeah. understanding that, you know, you only get this life. Yeah. So how can you fucking do yeah. the thing and do it, you know, soon? Yep. So uh, the thing that comes to mind is uh, the way to raise your upper limit that I'm currently learning works is look at your past and look for the moments where you have locked shame and liberate that locked energy through writing the story of what happened to yourself and then apologizing to both that version of you for what you did to yourself and then also apologize to anyone who was affected by whatever that action was and for you specifically because of the part two question is if you did the exercise of writing down each moment that you shamed your musician for not being more advanced than he was is this series of shame points that inform your sense of worthiness about what you're allowed to be as a musician mm -hmm. and to write those stories down of like each time you saw someone else that then you then used as evidence to hit yourself and to uh, like reparent that part of you and then apologize to that part of you. And what I'm doing is I first write out a bullet list of each of the memories that are like one sentence long. And then, um, you know, like for half an hour to an hour a day, I'll take one and then I'll write it as a story. And then once I feel that I've truly looked at the story and I've apologized to myself and I've accepted my apology, uh, I change the heading of that story 
to almost like a artistic story. And then I turned the font color from black to gold. And I use that as like, all right, to the degree that I'm able to alchemize this now, I have done it. And I've only done it for like five of these like 45 stories over the last, you know, two or three weeks. And I have noticed a, a, wow, I guess the best way to articulate it is I've noticed my upper limit growing. Mm. And what that has translated for me specifically is like, the audacity of what I believe I can aim at and try to do in this life, I have felt has significantly moved. Mm -hmm. And it feels like to the degree, a metaphor that I think is potent is if you could actually step into the structure of a tree and you look down at the roots, like imagine your consciousness is in the base of the trunk and you look down at the roots, Wherever the roots have turned to stone, if you can go down into that root and like bring out the calcified stone so that it can start to absorb nutrients again to the degree of the root that you liberate, you can then turn up towards the branches of the tree and you can see that there's now like a life flow into one of the branches and it's going to grow further mm. towards the light. And the roots are your past. And most of us just have calcification through a lot of these roots. And it stunts how far out the branches of the tree can go. Mm. And that you have a specific root structure around your musician, where there's like some part of you, your part X has just fucking abused mm. that magician with all of these examples about why you're not good enough, mm. which is fundamentally your story of like, why you won't even allow yourself the audacity mm. to believe. Because one of the things to feel into is, you know, for you and I, like we're at a point in our life, this is something that I feel often that fucks with me, is it's like, if I could just get still, and relax and slow down. I have so much opportunity in front of me. I have a unnatural amount of freedom compared to most people in the Western game right now. And that I genuinely want to use my life force and my competence and my skills to help what I see as my brothers and sisters, which is literally every human. what is the most beautiful audacious thing that i could aim at and then slowly move towards yeah i mean the metaphor of the tree is fucking beautiful and it's funny how you can use a metaphor of a tree for almost every <laughs> like everything but um yeah the, the thought that came to me while you were saying all that is like the specific action that you know you need to do like the tree itself is like the size of the tree is is like your life force and it's stunted and if you you know the specific action you can go to that root and you can decalcify it so that it can you know a new tendril or a new branch can grow 
But if you don't know what to do, it comes back to the life force. And the life force is just the watering of the tree itself. Like you don't, you can't see the calcification yet, but you can still water the tree. So if you 100%. don't know the specific action, you can still, you can still raise that upper limit and you can still increase the life force. Yeah. Like I'm dumb when it comes to <laughs> taking care of plants. Like I can feel that I'm very early in my competence in gardening, but what I do know is I can water it. And I don't understand why, but I believe that if I hum or sing to it while I water it, I just choose to believe that that helps. And the plants in our house are ridiculous. They're just like, all we do is water and sometimes sing to it, but they're- We just set the vibes. We just set the vibes and they're flourishing. But the interesting thing is they're all in pots. And my deep intuition is that um, the container of the pot actually mm. dramatically constrains just how beautiful it can be. 100%. Man. I remember like probably about six months ago, I could just tell that the plants were outgrowing their pots, which is just another beautiful metaphor for, you know, your life force. Like, have you, are you literally too big for your pot? And Carly came over and she repotted all the plants. And I just immediately felt like a new energy in the room. I was like, oh, there's room for growth now. Wow. Like they don't, they're not at their limit anymore. They're like breathing, like they're diaphragm breathing now instead of chest breathing. And I mean, since that happened, yes, we literally like are, we have vines like growing up our wall. And I think it's time to repot again, you know, yeah. both the plants and our lives. That is a great, great metaphor yes and then eventually you know like the plants will always grow better if they're just in the fucking ground and not in a pot because then you know they can merge with the ecosystem system of the earth and the potential for growth is unlimited yeah and the interesting thing is i think to uh connect this to the zoo metaphor is that because most of our environments where we could plant these plants, the soil is so mm. dry and just contaminated that for many of us, I think the in-between is something like a greenhouse, where a greenhouse is it's taking the best of the zoology, it's taking the best of the plant's pot but then the entire function of the structure is to create an eco system and an eco field and that like one of the things that i felt into last night as well was um most people's unconscious internal representation of home is literally a box with windows that you go into debt to a bank to acquire that is so disconnected from anything living that you probably don't even own you're probably just renting it you know and that that's most people's unconscious association to the word home and that um 
I think once we start to bring some intentionality into where we live, to connect it to nature, that turns a home into a greenhouse. Mm. So I think for today, uh, this is enough to get y'all's palate uh, appetized to go check out this documentary. And um, I can feel that I'm in a space in my life where I don't feel particularly called to do podcasts with other people. And so there will probably be more episodes like this until I get into a place where I'm ready to venture out, which will, you know, happen eventually. But uh, Graham is going to be a staple on these type of podcasts where we're just going to share with you guys whatever dope shit uh, I or we came across in the last week. And um, yeah, uh, thank you guys for listening. I didn't even really do an intro to the podcast. But I do want to do something that is uncomfortable for me, but feels like it's important. And this is a part of me um, trying to raise my upper limit. So I'm going to sell something to you guys for the first time. And uh, it's because I really believe in it. So I've worked for Fit for Service for the last four years, and I've never promoted it on this podcast. And um, I know that there are people who listen to my podcast who are either therapists or healers of some type. I know that there are people who, I know that there are people who have the means to join. And I want to say specifically to all of you, if you've ever wanted to grow with me, we're going to do a year-long container for 2023, which I wrote the landing page for. And this is the first time that I've ever written quote-unquote marketing copy. And everything in there is my word to you. And that I truly believe that this is going to be um, the most impactful year that we've ever done because I feel where I'm at in my life. And so if you want to learn how I understand psychology, if you want to explore trauma and healing and, you know, philosophy with me, if you have the means, come join. I have written the refund policy. And it's honestly, absolutely the dopest thing that I've seen when it comes to um, events like this, that if you join, you can experience three months of what we offer. You get to come to one of our five-day events. And then you have a week after that event. And that if you don't think that this is the dopest thing that you've ever done, we will give you all of your money back without making you jump through any hoops. And it's because I 100% believe in what we are doing. And there are people who are listening to this podcast who can't afford it, and that's okay. My podcast will always be free. I'm never gonna have an ad on my podcast for underwear or for an app that you go to bed on, you know, and God bless the people who do do that. But this is where I put my life force. 
And if you've ever wanted to work with me and grow with me, this is the container to do it. So if you're interested, go to fitforservice.com and check out the 2023 core program. And to be frank, um, if there are people who feel triggered um, because they can't afford it, I feel you. And I also don't apologize for what we charge. And it's because I'm the COO and I see how much it costs to do what we do. And I'm responsible for everyone on our team getting a paycheck. And um, I believe in what we do. So if that calls to you, come check it out. Because literally you can join. And if it's not everything that, you know, we've hyped it up to be and more, you get your money back. And you just got three months of incredible coaching for free. So check it out. And as always, I deeply appreciate each of you, you know, in this world where there's a hundred thousand plus podcasts, I really appreciate uh, those of you who listen. So thank you, big love, and I hope you have a great day.